This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, a podcast devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. This is our 18th episode, and I am Nick Batzig, your host for the show, and we're so thankful that you are tuning in again as we've taken a break, and we're jumping back in now uh, at the beginning of 2014, New Year, and we have lots of great sermons and interviews lined up and projects ahead of us, and it's great to be gathered together back with our two regular panelists. We have on with us Dave Filson, who is uh, teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Dave, it's great to have you back on. So good to be here. And as usual, we have Jeff Waddington, Dr. Jeff Waddington, who is still pastoring uh, Knox OPC. Is that right, Jeff? That's right. In Lansdowne, PA? Lansdowne, PA, just on the other side of Upper Darby. Very nice. How's that going? Oh, the Lord is blessing. What are you yeah. preaching through now? Uh, preaching through Second Peter in the morning and First Samuel in the evening, and Lord willing, we'll be going on to Hebrews in the morning and Isaiah in the evening. Man, you're picking all the good books. Mm-hmm. All, all the books of the Bible are good books, but those are great. And um, great to be gathered back with you guys. Before we do um, look at the sermon that we're going to look at from John chapter 14, I thought we'd just take a minute and make a few an- announcements. The first is that um, at the end of February, I will be um, representing, I guess, the Reform Forum in part in East of Eden, um, and we'll be uh, giving a paper at the Jonathan Edwards for the Church Conference at Durham University. Uh, the dates, this uh, precise dates are Thursday, February 27th, and Friday, February 28th. That's going to be at Durham University. And uh, some of the speakers I'm looking forward to hearing are um, uh, Doug Sweeney and um, Steve Nichols, uh, also uh, John J. Murray, William Cloud, Bill Schweitzer, uh, Michael uh, Brodingham, I don't know how to say that, and uh uh, McDermott, Gerald McDermott. So looks like it'll be uh, a really sweet time listening to some Edwards scholars, and I'm going to give a paper on um, Edwards' use of the Song of Solomon. So excited about that. So if any of our listeners are in the UK, we want to encourage you to try to get to Durham University if you can. Um, again, Thursday the 27th of February and Friday the 28th. Um, anything you guys want to announce? Oh. Just a, a few books that have come out uh, dealing with uh, Edwards. Uh, let's see. Uh, the, 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 the oldest one of the batch is uh, Kyle Strobel's book, Form for the Glory of God, Learning from the Spiritual Practices of Jonathan Edwards. I believe that's an intervarsity title. Uh, and the, the title, I think, is self-explanatory, dealing with the uh, spiritual uh, formation and so forth. Uh, Reese Bizant uh, has come out with a book from Oxford University Press, called Jonathan Edwards and the Church, uh, which looks like it's the, I believe it's the first full-scale uh, examination of Edwards' doctrine of the Church, and it looks like an excellent uh, book. Also uh, from uh, Wiffenstock, uh, or 
yeah, Pickwick Press, I believe, it's, which is a, an imprint of Wiffenstock. book called Jonathan Edwards' Bible by Stephen Nichols. And this is not our Stephen Nichols. This is a Stephen Nichols over in the UK. Uh, we don't, I don't know him, so I can't call him my Stephen Nichols. But uh, it, look, it also looks like a very uh, good study. Uh, and then recently, uh, a book uh, published by Wiffenstock called Living Justification, and last, the author's last name is Huggins, and he compares the Doctrine of Justification in Calvin Edwards in N.T. Wright. I, from what I've scanned, I'm going to be a, a bit more critical of that particular book, but at least you have some idea of the fact that Edwards is still attracting scholars and writers' attention. Very good. Exactly. There's also on a more, you know, I suppose popular level, uh, Desiring God has just released an ebook that's available at their site, which is, an, it's an interesting format. It is a collection of the various places in uh, John Piper's writings where he quotes Jonathan Edwards. And um, there are a couple of other little tidbits in there, you know, sort of a kind of a personal, I guess, note on the chronology of how Piper encountered Edwards uh, over time. And then Edwards' influence on Piper uh, from a bibliographical standpoint, but it goes through a set of of categories. Um, you know, if God is glorified in us uh, when we are satisfied in Him, and then there are, there are quotations there, and then the topic of self love, and there are quotations there, just different things. Uh, the excellencies of Christ, there are quotations. It's just a number of topics taken from Piper's writings, and it's uh, it's free. So our listeners should go to Desiring God and download that. I'm sure they'd enjoy it. Yeah, that sounds great. I know for I can speak for myself and maybe for both of you, but Piper had a huge hand to play in my coming to really understand the greatness of Edwards. And so he's one of those guys you want to really take time to um, to listen to as he talks um, talks about how he's been impacted by Edwards. And also, if you don't have it, and I know this is a lot for an intro, but if you don't have it, get that one volume of God's Passion for His Glory, which is really Ed, uh, Piper explaining and making easy Edwards and for which God created the world. That was hugely, mm-hmm. in, for me, a, a year yeah. converted and having you know the problem of evil explained from Edwards and Piper was huge and very helpful to me. So. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so we want to encourage you to get that, get some of the books Jeff's mentioned, except the last one, obviously, it sounds like, and uh, and um, let us know if you have any other recommendations. We are always open to receive um, feedback or, or ideas from you all, too, or recommendations. So, um, Well, we want to jump in as we come back this new year into East of Eden and look at one of my favorite Edward sermons. And I'm one of those guys that, you know, anytime something impacts me, I'm like, this is one of my favorite things. But this really is one of my favorite (laughs) sermons. I have like like 50 favorite Edward sermons. But if I had to categorize these and I had to give you a top 10, this sermon's in there. Absolutely. No doubt. It is the peace which Christ gives his true followers. And I'll just say here by way of preface that I was so impacted by this sermon as a young Christian, and I think it was this sermon in part that helped me to see the depth and the creativity um, and the theological genius of Edwards. And I think hopefully that'll come out a little bit in this show. But um, it is 
Edwards' um, 1750 sermon on John 1427, where our Lord Jesus in the upper room with the disciples just before he goes, uh, his arrest and his betrayal, his arrest and his his sufferings, his trial, uh, says to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. And so this, this sermon is a, a sermon on that single verse of our Lord Jesus saying, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, do I give unto you. And so I wanted to ask Jeff, if you would open up a little bit and uh, open us up and, and give us some of the historical background, what we know about this. Sure. Uh, before I do that, I was tempted to break out into the uh, song from The Sound of Music, uh, a few of my favorite things. Yes. Uh, Why don't you but, do that uh, for us, Jeff? I think our <laughs> listeners would appreciate that. I think I'll pass. You might want uh, to do the whole Do-Re-Mi song first to get warmed up there, everybody. Yeah, I was going to say, um... Anyways, uh, this sermon was preached uh, in August of 1750, and it's good to keep in, in mind the context. This is only one month after uh, Edwards has been deposed or voted out of his uh, pastorate in Northampton, although he's still uh, serving as stated supply or pulpit supply uh, for another year, which is an awkward situation in its own right. Uh he this was preached apparently as the first of eight sermons that he preached in Canaan, Connecticut, where he was uh, candidating after his deposition from uh, the Northampton congregation. Uh, but I think it's really uh, this is a one of those beautiful sermons that becomes even more poignant uh, when you understand the context of the the circumstances in life in which uh, Edwards was going through at the time. Uh, but again, one of the, the we believe to be the first sermon preached uh, uh, in a series of eight, uh, where he was candidating at the, in, to the congregation in Canaan, Connecticut. I think it's interesting, Jeff, that you know Edwards did preach this right after um, he was ejected or during that period, um, and uh, he was dismissed from Northampton, and. Um, I wonder if he wasn't drawing comfort from this sermon, you know, well, just... I, I would certainly hope, I mean, all of us, as the three of us as preachers, you know that we're preaching the sermons to ourselves before we ever preach it to anybody else, before we get into the pulpit as we're doing, you know, preparation. Uh, we're, we're subjecting ourselves, and even in the preaching of it, you know, in the preaching of our sermons, we're preaching to, to ourselves. I tell my mm-hmm. folks, I say, you know, beloved, when when I'm preaching these things, remember that I'm preaching them to myself as well as to you. Uh, and that's a true statement because we stand under the word. We're not over the word. We're under it. And and in this case, Edwards, I would hope that Edwards would draw comfort from his own message, uh, given the context of, you know, the feeling of dejection must have been pretty strong if not anger, you know, the various feelings he would have gone through uh, subsequent to being removed from the pulpit there. And then to have what might strike some people as the indignity of having to fill the pulpit for another whole year uh, after being removed. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I think this is why it's important that we do these historical intros and just think about the setting, because he was a man who had his own spiritual needs, and and there's you know a good chance he was drawing comfort from this passage 
you know. I think that's well-founded speculation, actually. I think it's well-founded speculation that he was drawing comfort on it for a couple of reasons. One, just consider the the spiritual maturity of this man with whom we're dealing. Um, I can't imagine that, um, though he's not perfect by any stretch, I can't imagine that a man as uh, sort of intoxicated with the majesty of God and, and the beauty and the sweetness of Christ would not craft these words, preach these words, and also draw comfort from them himself. In other words, I don't think he was preaching in any kind of aloof or detached manner. Uh, I think that would be inconsistent with what we know of him. I think because of that, given what he had just gone through, and the fact that from everything we read uh, in, the, in the historical record, there was not any kind of um, you know, spiteful, vindictive response in him toward the Northamptonites. Uh, I think rather what you had in Edwards and what we see in the historical record was a tenderness of spirit, you know, uh, a humbling of himself, a, a reliance upon the Lord. Uh, even in his farewell sermon, he didn't take it as an opportunity to do any kind of I told you so kind of things. Uh, that There was a maturity about him, and so I think there was a tenderness of heart that led to as he writes about these things, he is drawing comfort on him. And I think along with that is the fact that, as uh, Kimnock points out in his uh, editorial introduction in the Yell edition, as you look at the nomenclature in this sermon, Edwards is, is using very experiential language uh, as it relates to the Christian life. You know, As he's talking about peace, he's talking about the sweetness of Christ, etc., and he points out how this is reminiscent of some of the themes and some of the passions that Edwards had in uh, his early ministry in his New York yeah. period of, of preaching. You know, that, that whole, say, 1720 to, to 27, um, New York, Bolton, early Northampton, uh, those sermons, uh, it's not just the New York, but, but, but Bolton and the early Northampton, he's using the sermons as vehicles for um, the expression of, of, of the Christian life and in very experiential terms, sweetness, beauty, etc. And he does that throughout his whole corpus, but you see that really characterizing those early sermons. We only have about 65 from, from that period, but he's doing it here, you know, toward the, the you know, later part of his ministry on the hills of, of having just been released. So I think there was a tenderness of spirit that led him to do that, use that kind of nomenclature, and certainly enjoy it and apply it to himself. Preaching to himself, as Jeff says. Yeah, that's great. That's really good. I think that's helpful for us as we go into this sermon. Um, Dave, why don't you walk us through the structure and the flow of the sermon? Sure. Briefly, it is, uh, yet again, an example of Puritan plain style uh, preaching, where you have the tripartite division of exposition, where he deals with the text, doctrinal observations, and in this case, application, which uh, sometimes you'll see it referred to as use or, or improvement, etc., uh, the exposition, uh, very brief, as it typically is, where he simply talks about where this discourse is found in John. I do love the way that he points out, however, because this was his dying discourse, this was Jesus' dying discourse, it makes it all the more precious. Uh, you know, He says that it is the most remarkable uh, of his discourses that we have recorded in our Bibles, particularly because it was his dying, his parting discourse. So he sets it up, then he moves into... A series of doctrinal observations, which makes up the, the bulk of the sermon, and we'll get into those, but you know, just things like the fact that the peace that Christ gives is qualitatively different from anything man could give because it's his peace, not just his peace in terms of ownership that he can give, but his peace that he's currently enjoying even as he, as he gives it. Um, this peace results from freedom from the curse of the law. 
um, this piece is you know better than anything a man can have on his deathbed that, that he's relied upon, et cetera. So he unpacks that doctrinally, and then the application section, which contains probably my favorite uh, statement in the whole sermon where he says, I want to invite you to a better portion, uh, namely leaving off those things in which you've sought satisfaction and peace and the better portion who is, who is Christ. Um, this is very, you know, there, there are things in here that are consistent with miscellanies such as miscellany 812, um, 1111, 1206, where he talks about peace, the relationship between repentance and forgiveness, uh, even where he talks about, I believe this is in miscellany, yeah, it is in miscellany 1206, where he talks about the, um, the beauty of, of the Christian religion and what is revealed in that. And that ties in with his sermon here where he says, uh, apart from what is revealed in, you know, in Scripture, the peace that Christ gives, natural man can't come up with anything like it. And uh, the peace that he thinks he has, um, you know, really is, is, is a false peace. It can't sustain him. Um, so there's a little tidbit there on the structure. Yeah, that's great. Um, and as we jump into the sermon, as usual, Edwards does give that little um, expositional section. I always wish it was more, and I think that's why I love his miscellanies and mm-hmm. his notes on the Bible, because it seems like he gives more, more lengthy or focused series of exposition. Um, but that was not Edwards' style of preaching, but he always gives you that meaty, substantive um, introduction. And I love where, as he, he starts to unfold this passage, um, he speaks about the peace, and there in, in the first point in the introductory section, he says that it was his own, that which he had to give. And this is, by the way, one of my favorite, I think about this all the time, is one of my favorite short couple sentences by Edwards as he reflects on this. And this is where I think I first started to see something of the greatness. He's reflecting on Jesus going to the cross. He's reflecting on Jesus as a man, you know, not as as God, though he is God, but reflecting on him as a man. And he says, it was the peculiar benefit that he had to bestow on his children. Now he was about to die and leave this world as to his human presence. Silver and gold he had none, for while in his estate of humiliation he was poor. The foxes have holes, he quotes our Lord Jesus, the birds of the air had nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now here, here's the sentence I love. He had no earthly estate to leave his disciples, who were, as it were, his family, but he had peace to give them. Mm. I think that there is a—when I read that for the first time— as a young Christian, there was a theological genius behind that, that he's reflecting on Jesus as a father, you know, picking up in the language of Hebrews 2, here am I and the children whom thou hast given me out of Isaiah. And, and he's now this father is dying. And, and when fathers die, they give their, and he's going to talk about this all through the sermon, they give their children, you know, estates and bank accounts and possessions. And, and Jesus didn't have any of that to give, but he had peace. He had divine peace to give, and he gave them what he had. And I love, too, there, Nick, the way that he kind of even gets behind that with that, with the whole idea of giving an estate, where he says when a parent dies and they give their estate to their children, their children enjoy it, but the parent no longer enjoys it. So there's not a mutual enjoyment of that peace. Right. Um, even though Jesus didn't have houses and, and lands and those kind of material goods in his estate, he gives peace. The difference is uh, 
he still enjoys the gift that he gives, you know, because the, the peace that is his to give is one that he himself enjoys along with us as recipients of that, of that estate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, it's also interesting that after going on and in that introductory section, after going on and, and, um, and explaining the nature of this peace, the peace he enjoyed, the same excellency that he had in God, um, and, he, and he really unpacks the nature of it. He then go- picks back up on this idea of a last will and testament, that Jesus is, is entrusting um, his saving benefits to his disciples the way, in, in, by way of analogy, that someone, when they die, entrust um, their, their, entrust their possessions to their loved ones. And it's interesting in the sermon, he will appeal to Luke, um, I'm sorry, to Hebrews chapter nine. And, you know, I don't know if our readers are, or our listeners are familiar with, um, the, the, something of a debate that's gone on in modern years over the use of the word diatheke and suntheke, um, covenant or testament. How do we translate that? I know Gerhardus Voss has a really helpful section on that in his, um, in in the Princeton Theological Review called Hebrews, the Epistle of the Diatheke, and also um, in his little book on the teaching of the Epistle of the he- to the Hebrews, um, which would be worth a read, by the way. But here, you know, Edwards is picking up on that testamentary um, element of the covenant, and I think there is one. I think the Puritans sometimes translated Diatheke testament too much too often when it should have been covenant and there is a distinction there. But there is a testamentary nature to Jesus has to die and then in his death, all those benefits flow. They are, as it were, willed over to believers. Any thoughts on that? From yeah, I agree. Audience? I mean, he says that uh, this covenant between Christ and his children is like the will or testament, also in this respect, that it becomes effectual mm-hmm. and a way is made for putting it in execution no other way than by than by his death, and so that that's what he's getting at. And and let me say this too: you, you read this sermon, uh, and especially here in the doctrinal section, he's really expounding the do, uh, the doctrine of the covenant of grace. And do we not see over and again in so many of these sermons uh, the the covenantal nature of his of his theology? He is always dealing with covenant of. Redemption works in grace. It just seems like over and again. And so that's why it has befuddled me forever, you know, Perry Miller's contention that Edwards was not a covenantal theologian. It's just remarkable that that could be be stated about Edwards because you see it so clearly in his preaching. And here's yet another example. Yeah, I mean, how right. anybody can make that statement, it's all over his writings. Mm-hmm. I think the only, the only way that, that argument could have been made was simply if you had a mistaken notion of what covenant theology was. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think of it as an Arminianizing, as a domesticating of God, if you think of the God of Calvin as being this supreme, a distant, unfeeling deity, which I think is how uh, Perry Miller exactly thought of Calvin's mm-hmm. God. He sees Edwards and says, and, you know, well, well, then, then the, 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 you know, the Reformed uh, scholastics, the Westminster Assembly, they come and they domesticate God by entering into a covenant theology. We, we, we look at, we, we now have a contract between this uh, undomesticatable God and, and human beings, such that God is bound 
to, to act in certain ways towards uh, the elect. Uh, it, well, it's it's this whole idea of Arminianizing God is is a problem from the get go. But in the, in this particular sermon, I, I I love the the it's the the couple of things going on. One is that uh, uh, Edwards compares and contrasts what Christ has done as giving peace to to us with the estates that that people that, that fathers typically left their children. As David has already pointed out, one of the big differences is that with Christ and us, uh, we mutually enjoy the peace, whereas, of course, when a person dies and leaves his estate, he no longer enjoys it, his children and heirs do. Uh, but there's clearly this uh, greater, an argument from the lesser to the greater, the lesser being, you know, the, the uh, a father dies and leaves his estate, which could be, you know, million multi-millions of dollars a large mansion and, and property and possessions and and of course edwards wants will argue that that's nothing that that's rubbish in comparison to the peace that christ gives that passes all understanding and, and remember the the context in which our lord uh, makes these remarks which is that he's go he's about to to be arrested to be trade arrested uh tried you know in an immoral trial, a mock sham of a trial, and then crucified. Uh, and thankfully, we can say he will rise again from the dead as well. Uh, but that's the context in which these statements are made. Remember, uh, and I preached through John recently, so I guess some of this is still fresh in my mind. Jesus is telling his disciples that he's not leaving them orphans. Mm -hmm. They might be tempted at about this point when he's telling them, I'm not going to be with you anymore. Now, this is the same context in which he will say, and I will send the, another comforter, right? Another strengthener, mm -hmm. another advocate. Well, one of the things he's going to do in not leaving them orphans is he's going to give them a peace that passes all understanding, a peace that the world can't comprehend. Mm. And that, that no doubt, that does offer to he himself, Edwards, uh, a comfort that, 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 that he undoubtedly needed in the context wow. of being turned out of his pulpit in Northampton. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, mm -hmm. but that doesn't, he never mentions that, you know, in the sermon. He doesn't say that. Uh, we, we, we surmise that, I think rightly so, from the, mm -hmm. knowing the historical context. But here, the, the stress is upon what Christ, the pre-peace that Christ offers through, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget that, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is just that. Is a, it is a, he is a gift and, and that that the, that, the, uh, that Christ bestows upon his people, ultimately at Pentecost, uh, after he's been raised from the dead and presents his oblation before the Father in the heavenly tabernacle. And yes, here I'm combining John with Hebrews. That's mm. a lot. We're allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and and this this piece is a piece that, as 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 Edwards points out, of course, is a piece that belongs to him. It, it is uniquely his, and he shares it. With with his children, and and uh, it is a gift of grace, is it not? Yeah, that's great. And Amen. as as already has been noted, um, this is. Um, hey, are you guys there? Yes. I'm gonna have to clean that up. <laughs> as 
as has already been noted, this is a strongly covenantal sermon. Mm. There's there's this covenantal um, structure to it, to the to the um, exposition of it, and to the doctrine of it, the body of it. Edwards will actually go into the nature of the new covenant and the blessings of that. This piece is a blessing in the new covenant. He'll use the the language of bequeath eleven times, which is that again testamental. Ideas. So he's looking at the testamentary aspect of the covenant of grace and what the death of Jesus is going to provide for his people through the Holy Spirit, everything that we've already mentioned. Um, but what's interesting to me, and this is not in this sermon, but Edwards reflects on this idea elsewhere in his writings. That years ago, when I was reading through notes on the Bible, I came across um, a section on Genesis 48, 21. And what's fascinating is Edwards looks back on the Genesis narrative and the covenantal dealings of God that, you know, at this point, um, Jacob is the covenant head, Abraham was, and, and now, um, and now Jake, uh, now, I'm sorry, uh, Israel, um, and he's dying. And the, in the end of the book of Genesis, as most of our listeners will know, you'll, you'll find these death speeches of the patriarchs, and they Mm -hmm. are covenantal speeches, and they are conferring covenantal blessing Mm -hmm. on their son, sometimes covenant curses, but largely focus on the covenant blessings and the expectation that God's going to send a redeemer. And Mm -hmm. and we know from reading our Bibles that those covenant blessings in Genesis 48 and 50, Joseph does it when he goes to die, that those are all fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and in the death of Jesus. And and what's interesting is that Edwards in this note, uh, in this particular um, uh, section of notes on the Bible, he says this, and I want to read this because I thought this was one of the most profound things I've read in him. He quotes Genesis forty-eight twenty-one. Israel said to Joseph, behold, I die, but God shall be with you. So Joseph, when he was near his death, said to his brethren after the like manner, Joseph said unto his brethren, he quotes scripture, I die. But God will surely visit you and bring you into this land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Edward says, thus the blessing of the presence of God with the children of Israel and his favor and salvation is by the death of Christ. He, when near death, said to his disciples, and he quotes John sixteen seven, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go away, the comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And, and, Christ promises elsewhere that the Father and the Son will come to him, will come to them. And then Edward says, Isaac's and Jacob's blessing their children before their death for of things concerning future inheritance were typical of our receiving the blessings of the covenant of grace from Christ as by his last will and testament. And then he points to John 14, 15, and 16. That's exactly what he's doing in this sermon. I thought that was profound, that he looks back at the patriarchs, he sees their dying speeches, and then he's looking at Christ's dying speech, and he's drawing out that, that typological and organic covenantal relationship. Any thoughts on that? It's just clearly the rich biblical theological prowess mm-hmm. of Edwards. Yeah, yeah it's it, mind-blowing, it, isn't it? it? It really is. I mean, we, we talk, I think about... You know, our hermeneutical and homiletical advantages that we have today, I mean, just just an embarrassment of riches for understanding the Bible, both at the scholarly and the popular level, from a redemptive historical, covenantal, biblical, theological perspective, he did not necessarily have those same advantages, right? He did not have the same embarrassment of riches that we have today, and yet it just seems sermon after sermon 
we see uh, the the biblical theological, as well as as well as the we could say the, the more uh, systemic. You know, I'm I'm looking here, and I love gospel nuggets uh, in in Edwards, and this is one of the most I think um, gospel in a nutshell moments we have here. He has procured for them peace and reconciliation with God, and his favor and friendship. In that he satisfied for their sins and laid a foundation for the perfect removal of the guilt of sin and the forgiveness of all their trespasses and wrought out for them a perfect and glorious righteousness most acceptable to God and sufficient to recommend them to God's full acceptance to the adoption of children and the eternal fruits of his fatherly kindness. And so in one sermon, rich biblical theology, as you've pointed out, which he just was, was a master at it, and at the same time, in a little nutshell, such good systemic uh, theology, it, just beautiful. Yeah, and and Edwards, when he unpacks the doctrine, um, he spends a, a good deal of time really looking at those two divisions: the one that um, it was his own peace, and that it was his peace that he gave them, the peace which he enjoyed himself. And that's really the division of the doctrine. And he spends a large portion of time, and we're not going to go through all of that, but just a large portion looking at what it means that it was that it was his, that it was his piece, and Edwards really emphasizes that. And um, I, do, I do love when he comes to explain um, at the bottom of page 544 in the uh, Yale edition of the Sermons and Discourses, volume 25, Wilson Kimnack edited, um, bottom of page 544, when he, when he explains that this piece was his piece and how it, it comes to be ours, he says, When Christ had finished his labors and sufferings and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, then he entered into his rest. I lo- and he's drawn there in Hebrews 4, and into a state of most blessed, perfect, and everlasting peace. I mean, think about... You know, we talked about Edwards. Did he internally derive peace from this verse? Was he benefiting spiritually from it in his particular situation? Edwards is looking at the Savior and looking at what the Scriptures reveal, and he's thinking about the experience of Jesus in glory. Mm-hmm. I think this is remarkable. It's he's remarkable about the peace and the rest that Jesus experienced in glory. Yeah, Does that could... not say something then, when we, in our liturgies, when we say to our congregation, the peace of Christ be with you, and they reply, and also with you. Mm. That says something about, in, in other words... We should start doing that at our church. You know, <laughs> I mean, think, think about what, what you've just said here and pointed out uh, in Edwards, Nick. For us to say the peace of Christ be with you, there's more going on with the peace of Christ than maybe we realize. Uh, we're not wishing upon or, or praying for our congregation to have you know, a subjective experience of Christ's peace personally. We're saying something very profoundly dare I say it, ontological about the peace of Christ that um, in and of itself, that, that he experiences um, currently in his ascended session. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about the fact that, that uh, first you have the peace that Christ had as the Son of God, the Son of Man. I mean, it was two, two natures, but he had that peace that uh, the Son of God possessed with the Father and the Spirit before he became incarnate. Then you have the the uh, the man, Christ Jesus, who has peace with the Father, doing the Father's will, obeying the Father, uh, uh, being under the Father's approbation and, and goodwill all along the development that, that the 
that Dr. Luke so clearly, you know, notes, uh, he grew in wisdom and in stature, uh, before God and men. And then you see that, uh, the, uh, the father's pronouncement at his baptism, mm -hmm. this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's, mm -hmm. that represents peace, but it goes beyond that. We, we're talking now about the peace that Christ had because he went into the grave and came out the other side. Yeah, yeah, Edwards what, says... What you'll see there, Edwards reminds us that, that Christ is justified, vindicated in his resurrection. Remember, his death was the death of a curse. It was a cursed death on the cross. He comes out the other side. He is, he is no longer under the curse. He is vindicated. He's justified. And and because of that, we are justified who trust in him by faith. Uh, and he therefore has, what does Paul say in Romans 5? We, because we have been justified, we have peace with God. Well, that's true of Jesus, mm -hmm. and therefore true of us secondarily. Mm -hmm. And so the peace that Christ experiences, that peace by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is ours as well. Mm -hmm. That's what he says, that peace which has been described that is the peace that Jesus has because he's been raised from the dead and is now justified or vindicated. That peace is ours. It, it is what believers enjoy is a participation of the peace, which their glorious Lord and master himself enjoys by virtue of the same blood by which Christ himself has entered into the rest. Remember I earlier made reference to Christ enter in, entering into the tab heavenly tabernacle to offer his oblation. Of mm -hmm. his blood, and that and that is, the Christ is able to enter into the Father's presence without fear of destruction, and and by virtue of that, we're able to enter into the Father's presence without fear of destruction, and we possess peace, that the peace that that uh, is the result of having in heaven not, not a wrathful judge, you know just to allude to John Calvin, but a loving Heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love how Edwards um, goes on to describe how this peace was Jesus's in experience. And he says, after you know finishing the work of redemption and, and ascending and, and entering into his rest, he says, um, delivered by his own sufferings from our imputed guilt. Mm. And, and, you know, uh, Hugh Martin, by the way, if anyone has not read The Shadow of Calvary, I think it's called. It's uh, Hugh Martin's Sermons on Gethsemane. It's worth reading just for the section about how the impu imputation of our sin to Jesus caused him agony of soul, mm. and that the imputation of his righteousness ought to produce joy in us. Even though we're not transformed by the imputation of his righteousness, we should have joy as if it is really ours, just as he had agony in the garden over our imputed sin to him as if it was really his. And Edwards is kind of picking up on this, that Christ had peace in his resurrection because he was delivered. And think about that. He goes from sweating drops of blood in the garden to telling his disciples after the resurrection, 
peace be with you. He pronounces that covenant blessing, right? He lifts up his hands when he's ascending and blesses them. This mm-hmm. is a man no longer in agony. This is a redeemer who's, who's been delivered, Edward says, from our imputed guilt, acquitted and justified of the Father in his resurrection, having obtained a perfect victory over his, all his enemies, was received of his Father into heaven, the rest which he had prepared for him, there to enjoy his heart's desire fully and perfectly to all eternity. And then... Edward says, this peace and rest in the Messiah is doubtless exceedingly glorious. He quotes Isaiah 11.10, his rest shall be glorious. And then he says, this rest is what Christ has procured not only for himself, but also for his people because of our union with him by his death and has bequeathed it to them that they may enjoy it with him imperfectly in this world and perfectly and eternally in another world. So lots, I mean, you could take that one statement right there. And just unpack the depth oh, of that. Absolutely. I mean, there's an already not yet thing going on here. You know, Christ post-resurrection is, as you pointed out, Nick, in a very unique position now to offer peace uh, because he now experiences peace uh, having gone through the suffering and the, and the trials of death and, and bearing our sin and so forth. He's able to. He's in that unique position to offer that peace. We don't enjoy the peace perfectly now, but... Post-resurrection for us, the new heavens and new earth, we will be also in a unique position to enjoy that peace at a whole, a whole other level. So there's an already not yet thing going on here, I think. There's also a Historia Salutis, Ordo Salutis thing, Jeff, as you've pointed out in your article recently going on here, and a, you know, an indicative imperative thing. There's all that going on where you know, Edwards is going to come to apply this and, and call people to seek for this and to you know, and to to grow in their understanding of these things, but it's rooted in the person and the finished work of Jesus. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you can't, pers- you can't um, be a, a follower of Christ and, and seek to obey his will without first being grounded in the, the, the graciousness of the gospel. Mm. What Christ has done for us is the basis for, our responding in obedience to him. Mm. And if we get that backwards, you know, we, we, we cause, we, we get into, we, we, we lose the peace. Yes. That's why, you know, Romans five is so important. Being justified, we have peace with God, the father through Jesus Christ, his son. And if we don't understand that order, then, then we'll we'll be robbed of the peace, yeah. And and that's so important because part of the, the the joy of the Christian life, and yes, I recognize that we go through hills and valleys and ups and downs and trials and tribulations as well as joy, but the joy of the Christian life is based upon the foundation of the peace that results from the reconciliation that has been made between. God and ourselves through the one man, the God man, Jesus Christ. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's great. Well, um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to belabor this section. Uh, There's so many rich things in here. I will just quickly point out that when Edwards goes to explain the nature of Christ's peace, he says four things about it. First, he says Christ's peace is a reasonable peace a reasonable peace of rest and soul. Secondly, he says Christ's peace is a virtuous and holy peace. 
Third, this peace greatly differs from that which is enjoyed by the men of the world with regard to its exquisite sweetness. And he mm. quotes there Philippians 4, 7. It's a piece that passes um, all understanding, natural men and worldly things. And then fourth, he says, Christ's peace infinitely differs from that pursued by the worldly in that it is unfailing and eternal peace. I thought that was a very interesting systematic approach that he is, you know, systematically looking at the nature of this piece and how, again, in the last two cases, how it differs from what the world is seeking after in values. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, he, he doesn't deny that the world seeks after peace, but it's always, it's like, you know, the country song, uh, looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, the peace, we often seek for peace in things, uh, in people, in relationships, in power, in, in the, all the comforts of this life, uh, yeah. uh, very often that's where we look for peace. And we, won't, it, we might get it there temporarily, and we might get it there piecemeal. Uh, but ultimately, the peace that we were meant to enjoy, the peace that we were created to enjoy, uh, is only found uh, this side of the fall through uh, Jesus Christ. That's right. I'll, I'll never forget uh, when we had first planted the church, we had maybe 20-some people come in, and, and a young couple came, and they were they were they had been unchurched largely. I'd met them out. I was surprised to see them, and, and after they left, they had filled out a card, and and on our visitor card, we have we ask for you know all their contact info, and at the bottom we say prayer request. And the girl wrote for world peace, and I thought, wow, you know, of all the things you could you could ask for, pray. My prayer request is for world peace, and obviously we want world peace, but we're going to have world peace in the new heavens and the new earth because of what Jesus has done in a way that no one can understand in the fullest mm-hmm. and richest sense. I just thought, you know of all the things you could ask for. But it's funny. We well, you know uh, that that section there the way he he concludes the doctrinal section there and talking about the eternal nature of this peace and contrasting that with worldly peace. I mean it really segues well into the application section where he says leave behind the things in which you've been seeking satisfaction and choose the better portion. You know, I invite you to a better portion, namely this right. eternal peace that Christ gives. And yeah. and and notice that that the peace comes as a byproduct of coming to him. Yes. In other words, you can't have the benefit that is peace without coming to Jesus Christ. That's right. Yeah, it's almost as if we could add, you know, I want to be careful here, but I mean that this is this is an implication, no not an adding to scripture, but an implication of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1:30 because of him you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. We could say and peace, which is what all of that entails, right? Um, you know, righteousness and redemption and so forth. Peace with God is a benefit of our union with Christ. Now, um, that's and that's very helpful. Um, it is interesting also that, as usual with Edwards, and you find this everywhere, and obviously Piper picks up on this, and I think Keller actually probably um, values this a lot because you'll find this in his theology, uh, Tim Keller on Idols of the Heart, and and over the last couple of years, I've thought a lot about this. One of the things that's often missing in in Reformed teaching and preaching in our day, and I don't think I would say it was missing in the Puritans, which is interesting because we often think of them as stodgy, and we think of ourselves as more sophisticated and more balanced. But, but I think they acknowledged, and Edwards here 
brings in this idea of satisfaction in the application section. And, you know, God wants us to be satisfied. God, pleasure, pleasure seeking is not wrong in and of itself. A desire for security is not wrong in and of itself. We looked at um, the the safety, Christ being our safety sermon that Edwards did um, last year, that all those things are in and of themselves not wrong things. Wanting peace, as Jeff noted, is not a wrong thing. Wanting safety and satisfaction, and um, but if we're not seeking them in Christ, then it is sinful, because we're seeking them in created things, even if they're good created things. And, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot. That is applicable to every second of our lives. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's never a time, in my experience, when that is not applicable. And I think that's why this surfaces in Edwards, the idea of satisfaction. He quotes Isaiah 55, too, where God says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm very grateful that Edwards constantly brings that out. He constantly brings that out, Nick, because... Not only is seeking satisfaction and seeking pleasure not a wrong thing, I think Edwards would tell us it's unavoidable and constant. Right. Yeah. You know, it, we, we are pleasure seekers, period. Ipso facto, we are, we, are, we are pleasure seekers unavoidably. And I think if we can kind of, you know, draw on kind of a, a Calvinian understanding of, of the implications of the Sensus Divinitatis and the Cognitio and Citia Dei and we're creating the image of God, etc. That's because we're created in the image of a God committed to his own pleasure and because there is that covenantal knowledge uh, of him and the fact that we're created in his image, we ourselves are constantly engaged in pleasure-seeking. Edwards is simply call, calling us to ask the question, in what are we seeking our pleasure? In what are we seeking our uh, our happiness, and, and that's you know why I love when he speaks in religious affections of the Lord being the cream of all our pleasures. We're going to seek pleasure. Yeah, the the issue we might say that the coming to faith in Christ is the reorientation of our pleasure seeking. It's not the denial mm-hmm. of our pleasure seeking, but the reorientation of it. Yes. As you've as you've both said, yes. the satisfaction uh, we were created to have pleasure in God. The first question of the the shorter Westminster shorter Catechism: What is the chief end of what is man's chief end? The chief end of man is to uh, glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, this is debatable, but I think John John Piper uh, in the recent CrossCon, the uh, missions conference that he sponsored recently, yep. uh, gave gave a, a sermon on the what he thinks would be. The, the intent of the Westminster Divines that instead of saying uh, glorify God and enjoy him, it would be glorify God in enjoying him. And I, I, I think that's, that's perfectly fine because as we come to faith in Christ, as we come to him and the Holy Spirit works in us, transforming our hearts and minds, our understanding of where pleasure will find its ultimate satisfaction and joy changes. Yeah. It, no long, it no longer becomes uh, fixated upon things of this world, which would be idols. Yep. Uh, it becomes fixated upon the one in whom it will find its most, uh, it, its most real satisfaction, its most mm-hmm. thorough satisfaction. And that is in uh, God himself, especially as he has manifested himself in, the, in his son, Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, yeah. Let me just read this as we close. That's really helpful, Jeff. And and here at the very end of the sermon, Edwards makes his final appeal, and he says, I invite you now to a better portion. There are better things provided for the sinful, miserable children of men. There is a sure comfort and more durable peace, comfort that you may enjoy in a state of safety and on a sure foundation, a peace and rest that you may enjoy with reason and with your eyes open, having all your sins forgiven, your greatest and most aggravated transgressions blotted out as a cloud, buried in the depths of the sea, that they may be never found more, and being not only forgiven, but accepted to favor, being the objects of God's complacence and delight, being taken into God's family and made his child, and having good evidence that your name was written on the heart of Christ before the world was made, an interest in that covenant of God that is ordered in all things and sure, wherein is promised no less than life and immortality, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, a crown of glory that fades not away. Way. And then he says at the very end, Hearken therefore to the friendly counsels that is given to you this day. Turn your feet into the way of peace. Forsake the foolish and live. Forsake those things which are no other than the devil's baits and seek after this excellence, excellent peace and rest of Jesus Christ, that peace of God which passes all understanding. Taste and see. Never was any disappointed that made trial. And then he says, finally, you will not only find those spiritual comforts that Christ offers you to be of surpassing sweetness for the present, but it will be in your soul as the dawning light that shines more to the perfect day. And the issue of all will be your arrival in heaven, that land of rest those regions of everlasting joy where your peace and happiness will be perfect without the least mixture of trouble or affliction and never have interruption or have any end. What a way to end a sermon. I mean, it's almost like ending a novel. Oh, it's epic. I mean, that's just an epic. Oh, I love it. Beautiful. Yeah, that's the, there's no way that he wasn't gaining, gaining uh, comfort from this sermon. He would have to be a, a stock of wood or a stone to not. Yeah. I mean, even as you were reading that, Nick, just closing our episode out, reading that, and you're bringing it to conclusion, I was just thinking, I'm just so thankful that this is true. Yep. Yep. Well, we encourage all of our listeners to uh, get a hold of this. This is in the two-volume, um, both the Banner Truth edi- Edition and the Hendrickson edi- Edition. Excuse me. Let me do that again. Hold on. We, I, made it, I made it all the way to the end. I was doing great. One thirty-four eighteen. Okay, hold on. Let me do this again. Here we go. Well... This is a really rich sermon, and we encourage all of our listeners to get a hold of a copy. You can find it in both uh, two-volume editions that are in print, the Banner of Truth edition and also the Hendrickson edition. You can also find it online at uh, edwards.yale.edu at the WJE online site that Yale has made so much of Edwards' works um, available on. You can find that also in volume 25 of Yale's published edition of Edward's Sermons and Discourses from 1743 to 1758. That is the Wilson Kimnack edited version. Um, and, and get this sermon and meditate on it and make it a part of you and benefit from it. Um, I know that it has been a great benefit to us. Um, we look forward to 
uh, coming back on and doing another show together um, next week. And so we want to encourage you to be tuning in regularly again. It's our plan to be releasing these episodes on a very regular basis, hopefully weekly or every other week. And so please be checking back in um, uh, at the Reform Forum East of Eden website to see if, if we have released new ones. You can also subscribe to the podcast there. We have lots of programs where you can find Dave and Jeff. They are on Christ the Center a lot. Um, uh, Jeff has written uh, a post recently at Christward Collective. We want to encourage you to check out some of our writings there, all of us right there. Um, you can listen to our sermons online at our various churches. And we are just so thankful that you would take time to tune in and listen to this episode of East of Eden, the Biblical and Systematic Theology of Jonathan Edwards.